I think the change over the last 10 years has been pretty significant. And the pace at which the incumbents are expected to adjust, it came as a surprise. They definitely weren't prepared for the sustainability agendas of all of the consumer brands companies. And that obviously has a huge impact on the rest of the supply chain. So I think the speed of R&D is now going to be the main differentiator between companies that will continue to service the needs of customers as their needs also evolve. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm so excited to be joined by Claire Hemingguka, founder of 1.5, a materials discovery and development company focused on tackling packaging waste around the world. This is such an important topic with waste pollution impacting our planet on such a severe scale. And I'm so inspired by Claire and the team's work innovating within this space. Over the course of the episode, we break down the scale of the challenge, how we found ourselves in this situation, the role of manufacturers, all the way through to waste recycling companies, and so much more. Before I pass over to Claire, if I may ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. And with that, let's pass over to Claire. My name is Claire Hemingusko. I am the co-founder of 1.5. I founded the company in 2020 with my friend Martin Weber. We know each other from a previous startup experience in Berlin, and we are a materials discovery and development platform. At least that's our going one-liner today. It might be different in six months. But uh, what we do is we primarily work with consumer goods companies and help them to develop new packaging solutions so that they can future-proof their portfolio with all of the changing regulation and all of the different sustainability goals that they've set for themselves. And uh, we look at ourselves as the extended R&D team or workbench to kind of augment the capacity and the the know-how that their internal teams have because the sustainability challenge is complex and difficult. And so it's, yeah, it's something that they're looking for a lot of support on. And that's, that's essentially the support or the facilitation that our team and our platform brings into the mix. Amazing. And when you say packaging, I'm assuming big focus there is plastics. And we know from all of the environmental reports and really just going to the beach, that plastics is a massive challenge for us at the minute. Mm -hmm. How do you look at this, the challenge and what, what sort of scale are we looking at here? I mean, I think, I think it would probably be more accurate to call it the packaging waste problem because the, under certain circumstances, if you're looking at the, let's say individual journey of one piece of packaging, there will be instances where your plastic packaging ends up exactly where it needs to be and it's recycled exactly the way that it was intended and then it can be reused for you know what you could call second generation packaging the reality however is and this is kind of the what we're getting the the brunt of today is that we as consumers but also as, as the industry we're not dealing with the material plastics in the right way and we weren't dealing with the waste in the right way and still aren't right i'm not saying that we've solved it by any means but that obviously leads to a huge waste problem because we have all of these materials that we've spent a lot of money and resources on and just don't know what to do with at the end of the life cycle anymore because we're yeah it was just misdesigned and so i think that we internally don't call it the plastics problem because we think there is a place for plastics it's just a question of you know 
what place should is the right one. We do consider it a packaging waste problem though. And that's really the one that we're trying to tackle with all of our customers so that we can have a, let's say circular packaging economy somewhere down the line that is truly circular with kind of zero, zero leakage and zero waste. But I think we're still a few years away from that in, in all honesty. And it's interesting to hear you break it down because obviously when you think about the, the production process for, for packaging, there's quite a large carbon footprint for that process alone. And then you then sort of fast forward to the sort of end of the, the life cycle of the product and the packaging and you think about where it goes and maybe it will go into a landfill, maybe it will go into sort of find itself into the waterways, et cetera. So it's interesting to hear you sort of focus on, I guess, the sort of towards the end of its journey mm. around, okay, what are we actually going to do with it? Would you, would you mind maybe just sort of breaking it down a little bit further in terms of what typically happens when, say, I put a, a crisp packet in the bin or mm -hmm. what, what does that sort of challenge really look like? Um, I mean, the crisp packet is a really good one because it is. It looks, I, I don't know if anybody's ever looked inside their Lay's packaging or even a Pringles can and cut it open. For the Pringles can is probably easier. Is, is if, you, if you were to cut it open, you'd see that a, a packaging or most packaging materials are made up of a variety of different uh, materials. They have kind of these sandwich layers and the crisp packet actually, despite the fact that it feels really thin and very, very insignificant, has probably upwards of six layers on top layered on top of each other to give your crisp packaging exactly the exact barrier that it needs so that your crisps remain fresh for upwards of, you know, I, I don't even know if it's 10 months or more, but it's, it's a relatively long time. If you think about how long these crisps have to last and the environments they have to go through, you know, Lay's or any of the crisps really Pringles, they are found in Asian geographies as well. So they need to be, you know, resistant to water vapor in geographies that have high relative humidity, tropical conditions, you know, it, it's hugely complex. So if you think about throwing away a Lay's packaging and you have to consider that recycling really is built to recycle one individual material. Now, if I have a material made out of six different products or six different, six different materials, either I only recycle one of those, right? But from such a small piece of packaging, it probably would be far too expensive to do that. Or I just decide not to do anything with it because it's far too complicated and far too expensive. And then it ends up in two places. Either it's burned. That's kind of the, the primary way here in, in Europe that we we call it thermal thermal recovery. That's the nicer, <laughs> let's say PR version of it, but really you're just burning materials that you can't can't get rid of. And you are using the heat for something else though. A lot of the times it's used for kind of the cement industry to, to, to power their very, very large furnaces or worst case it ends up in the in landfill, right? And that's kind of where a lot of these photos come from, Asian geographies, Southeast Asia, close to oceanways or waterways as well. So it makes the whole leakage problem even worse. And, and it just kind of becomes an endless problem because it doesn't go anywhere because these products were were made with materials that don't degrade quickly, nor do they, you know, are they safe for ingestion by animals or anything like that. So I think the, the packaging waste problem is a problem of design, first and foremost, because we have chosen to add products into the mix that are made up of so many different components that it's absolutely impossible to make anything new out of them. Plastics on their own, I think, are amazing materials. It's just that we've been really using them in all the wrong ways. And that's what we're trying to figure out now, how to do it better, how to do it more consciously, and how to do it also in a way where we're 
protecting the environment going forward rather than causing even more damage and kind of, you know, multiplying the the risk. And I, I guess when you describe that challenge, and it, it very much reminded me of the, the BBC Panorama show I saw a while back where they looked at coffee cups. And mm -hmm. I think the general consensus was that coffee cups are recyclable and you can recycling mm -hmm. men and you've done your good job. And it's a bit of a closed loop there. But then actually what they really shone a light to was the fact that, like you've described, coffee cups are made out of so many different materials and it's actually ends up in a landfill because you can't break them down like that. So mm -hmm. I think there's this big realization piece in at a, at a consumer level that actually maybe the world isn't exactly what we believe. And mm -hmm. a lot of the waste that we take comfort in thinking that it's recyclable isn't recyclable. And it, it sounds as though there's a challenge around the, the materials and the, the way that the products are created and designed, like, as you've described, but then also then at a processing level around mm -hmm. the, the waste recycling companies, maybe not having the technology and the capability to actually process it effectively. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to also consider, I mean, and I can only speak for the recycling facilities I've been to here in, in a, a lot of European member states, so here on continental Europe, I've, I've seen incredibly high tech facilities. They're using imaging. They are working with machine learning algorithms that know how to differentiate between a white yogurt cup from Danone versus a white yogurt cup from, I mean, I don't know the brand, I don't know all the yogurt brands in the world, but the other yogurt brands, because they all have slightly different geometries. And so they look different and they could be made out of different polymers altogether. So I would argue the waste recycling or the waste infrastructure is not as basic as people might assume when they hear they're not able to recycle the materials. You, you could, you can walk away knowing that, you know, in theory, every single Every single, let's say, sorting sorting facility, right, where all of our household waste goes into, the sorting facilities are probably able to differentiate and categorize all the different types of household waste that we give them into the smallest categories that you could think of, all the way down to, you know, like orange bottle, less than 5G made out of PP, right? The reality, though, is that there is no on the other side that wants to purchase that level of like or that specific a category so even if I were to I can't get rid of the waste that right now is a mono material right my my orange pp bottle so now also taking a step back and saying let me also separate the lathe packaging or the tetra pack or the the paper cups with the plastic lining so that I can put a coffee cup in it that's a huge amount of added effort on top. So I think it's more of an economic question than it is a technical question, right? There's just no market for products that cost so much because I have to go through so many additional steps to actually separate it. It's technically possible to separate them. It's just not worthwhile from an economic standpoint because nobody wants to pay, you know, five times, six times the regular price for something that I've spent a huge amount of energy and effort to separate properly. So I think it's, it's yeah, it's a market problem that I don't know whether it's going to be worthwhile solving really, or whether we say rather than trying to get the market to come up with pricing that doesn't really work, why not just design something that works better in the infrastructure, the way that it can work economically, and then make sure that we're kind of playing to everybody's strength. I think that's also a huge piece 
waste infrastructure, recycling and the, the whole end of life scenario, which it's called end of life because it's at the end. That was always the piece that nobody really cared about. Right. They were like, get it to the consumer, get it into their hands. That's all I care about. And then I, you know, ignorance is bliss. Whatever happens after is not my problem anymore. But it is a supply chain or it is a life cycle, which means I do have to consider that huge stakeholder group as well. And I think that's the piece now that a lot more companies and especially companies like ourselves are spending a lot more time understanding is what are the needs of the stakeholder group waste infrastructure and how can we use them as a much, much stronger and more proactive player so that you really can ensure the level of circularity that we're all looking to achieve because they're the ones that have to decide whether they can do something with your product, right? There is no other way around it unless you build up your own, but then it's super difficult and there's a lot more other challenges that you have to probably address. And I think that's only come about a few years. I mean, it's only recently come about, I think for quite some time, the waste infrastructure, if you ask any of them who work there probably said, nobody really cares. I have to make do with what I get. But now regulation and also the whole market is changing a lot more in their favor so that you can really, yeah, I guess, use their position and their know-how to design better packaging materials altogether. And I think that's a really important point that you brought up because if you look at a Unilever, for example, in order to quantify their scope three emissions, they need to have visibility of how their products are consumed and where they end up, because mm -hmm. that very much determines the scale of emissions for that singular product. Very much makes a difference on whether I put my yogurt pot in a recycling bin or I chuck it into a river. That is yeah. another part of importance to Unilever. So they do need that visibility and in order to do that, as you've described, they need that sort of wider engagement across their whole value chain. And I guess sort of thinking about, say, a Unilever, for example, and we've sort of touched on the role that the, the waste recycling companies have within the process, but sort of going more upstream towards a Unilever and the production process, I guess sort of thinking historically, Unilever would likely only really be optimizing for the cost. Mm -hmm. and profits, which naturally then has quite a lot of side effects, which can be seen in the situation we find ourselves in today with the scale of, of pollution, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How would you say this incentives and optimization piece is changing for, for Unilever, for example? I, I still think that they focus on price and, or their costs and margin because consumer goods it is a difficult space, right? There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of different players and consumers are fickle. <laughs> we like to switch from one brand to the other. So I do think price remains a high priority for them or cost. What is now being added to the mix though is, these, is this aspect of, you know, how are we presenting ourselves as a sustainable business in front of the consumer? Because we've now started to also think about that in our purchasing decisions. I don't think it's as powerful as a lot of people think. I do think most of us would still, if we're presented with two different options, still go for the one that is cheaper or for the brand that we know, even if the other brand has amazing claims and amazing innovation and all these different, let's say, benefits that they're communicating to us. It's just the, the purchasing habit that we're subject to. But it, it is something that the companies have chosen to take on board. I'd say every single consumer brand worth their, worth their money in the business today have set really, really ambitious sustainability targets for the next few years. All of them have an incentive to be the one that either makes it first or isn't the only one to fail. 
because they know that we're going to be looking at the PNGs versus the Unilevers and they have very, very similar sustainability goals. I think PNG or Unilever even set the goal of being carbon neutral by 2039 and the other had it set for 2040. So you could see that they're even kind of on the timeline. They're being like, I can edge you out one year and I'm going to beat you before I you know, beat you and make sure that I'm first. But I think the consumer sentiment and also the urgency around change being pushed by regulators is just a, kind of a big perfect storm that I think they're having to operate within but they won't be going for solutions that are completely out of their price range. Like it's just, it's, it's unreasonable for them to do that as a business that makes, you know, a few cents per product. Their margins aren't outrageous. You know, this is not a high margin business. If you compare it to some other products that definitely are much, much higher margin, even amongst the, the, the luxury brands, it's still relatively competitive. So asking, asking a, you know, marketing manager to take a drastic reduction in their profit margins for an incremental increase in sustainability, which a lot of the solutions today in the market are, it's a no-brainer. They're still going to go for their profit margin, right? Because that's what their performance bonuses are based off of or, or any kind of other incentive is still based on, you know, are you making money for the company and are we still keeping our market share? So I think that's something that we need, will pull and will probably continue to fight with. The, the benefit now is just that, or the reality now is just that a lot of the materials and solutions that are coming out are becoming more and more cost competitive than they were maybe 10 years ago. So you don't really have to be fighting on price so much anymore. There is often more middle ground or more of a compromise between price and sustainability performance. And you can kind of work towards acceptable middle ground for both parties, but it does require a little bit of negotiation. Thinking about other actions that some of these companies are taking around sustainability, we see quite a few examples of them being more innovative around some of the materials that they're using. For example, I've seen examples around sugarcane biomass. Mm. What, what's your take on those types of approaches? I think the sugar, so there's a lot of bioplastics and there's feedstock like sugarcane that tend to pop up as being the preferred uh, option simply because sugarcane or corn I mean, these are cultures that we know how to farm. We know how to farm them at large scale. And so if you're saying, I want to compete with petroplastics, you obviously want to go for a supply chain or a feedstock that you know is abundant or at least has the ability to turn into or has the ability to deliver extra high volumes because petroplastics are, I mean, the market is absolutely ginormous. Bioplastics are making up really the smallest fraction. I don't have the numbers ahead of me, but if you look at a pie chart, it's it's actually quite sad considering how much we need to or how far we need to go so i think the the benefit there is that we're we, we are able to move over to you know biofeedstock alternatives the danger there of course and again you know it's always an engineering question and it's always a question of what is the trade off what am i accepting and what do i have to give up the reality is if we focus more and more on monocultures which we would need to to get to the volumes that we need to to, to service the bioplastics market you're also then, let's say, promoting or at least causing perhaps an entirely different problem on the other end of the sustainability spectrum, which might be, you know, biodiversity loss because sugarcane and, and corn, you know, they're also being used for food products today. If now we add on top materials and there's other industries, chemists, the, chemi the chemical industry that also wants to work with biofeedstock, you know, biofuels, huge piece everything needs biomass, right? And it's always going to whittle down to a, a few pieces of, or let's say a few set of cultures that we know we can grow at very, very large scale consistently to meet the needs of all of these different industries. 
But really, I think I'm, when Martin and I first started, I heard a podcast and they said just to meet the needs in terms of biomass of, of the like oil usage that we have today for fuels, plastics and everything that comes out of that, we'd need three times the world's entire biomass in order to even cover what we're using today. And that's not even what we're going to cover and then use in the next 10 years. That's what we're using today. So like the planet isn't, isn't even built to be able to service that level of volume. And definitely the ecosystems aren't, you know, or the ecosystems are then also at risk of being, I'd say, not manipulated, but I guess affected ne negatively by our growth, our need to grow. And that's always something that one has to take a look at, especially if you're saying that this is the more sustainable bioplastic alternative. It may be from an emission standpoint, it may be from a, from a, you know, feedstock standpoint, but you really have to do your research and ask yourself, you know, where is it coming from? What have they done to make sure that they're not causing additional biodiversity loss? And how can I make sure that I'm free if I am the person responsible for purchasing the new bi alternative, for example, that's, um, that a supplier has recommended? And when you start exploring the alternative options, such as, say, biomass as a replacement for sort of petrochemical as a source, you then edge into the territory of actually thinking a lot more about the planetary boundaries and actually the limits in which we can operate as, as, as a planet. I know that this is something that you think about quite a lot in your approach. How do you think about this at 1.5? I mean, for us, the planetary boundaries, it's a methodology or a way of measuring that was come up by, a I think it was a Swedish research group that we're now using to kind of also mark the maximum the natural world can give us. We arguably don't use that methodology day to day because it is it is a very high level view on all of the different natural resources that exist and, and how they can be utilized or not utilized for certain purposes. The way that it really impacts our day to day is twofold. I mean, on the one hand, all of the European Green Deal directives that are coming through are also, or a lot of them have been written with biodiversity protection, resource protection in mind, because the concept of planetary boundaries informs us and says, you know, you can't just endlessly and senselessly use whatever you want just because it's now biomass that's available to you. There's also a certain way that we have to calculate whether it is in the greater interest or benefit of the whole natural environment. And so there's a lot of different ways where you can see that now taking effect in the new directives that are trickling down from the from the European Commission. And then secondly, I mean, the the general premise, I mean, even if you just take my number of I'm going to need three times the amount of biomass to to service the needs of, of existing customers from the petrochemical industry, it's not you wouldn't be far away from then making the conclusion, okay, well, then how can I just utilize what we have even more, right, or even better? And the reality there is that you could probably start working with waste from other existing processes to say, look, somebody's going to be using the sugarcane biomass for something. There's always some kind of waste product that comes out of it. If they haven't already figured out what to do with it, is there something that I can do so that from one batch of biomass, you're not just making one product, but in, in, in an ideal sense, you're making maybe two or three different products for three different applications, and you're optimizing on, on the original input. And I think that's a challenge on its own. There's a lot of companies who have tackled it. I mean, there's where the concept of biorefineries come from. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there, but I also think it's not really the preferred way to go because it means that you have to think for four different stakeholders, four different supply chains, and it, it then adds in complexity if you're, you know, a, a sugarcane, let's say, or a bioplastics processor, and then you you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, well, what do I do with X, Y, and Z? Whereas before I just said, look, I just sell my product and I, I get to go. So I think, I think that's 
probably one of the other ways where it really impacts our line of work because we're constantly asking ourselves, are there waste products like lignin from paper manufacturing that we can use that right now don't really have a usage at all? And can we turn that into something that the packaging world could probably could could make use of more so that we're having we're not having to utilize virgin materials in the same way and hopefully then also reducing the entire kind of environmental impact of a, for example, lignin based heat seal, right? If that's if that's a, a way that we would choose to go. And that's a really interesting point because you hear increasingly more often that the correct and appropriate response to climate change, for example is to do everything and think about it holistically, think about it as an ecosystem. And it reminds me a lot of one of the previous guests that we've had on the podcast here, Rene Haas, CEO at Neo, that works with industrial process companies to actually use of the thermal heat that is a byproduct of the industrial process to actually then power a carbon capture unit, which is quite an interesting approach and very much that approach of okay, working holistically, working collaboratively to try and make use of waste products and turn it into value. Thinking ahead in terms of the solutions and what can we do? So we understand some of the challenges around waste recycling. We understand some of the challenges within the, the world of packaging. I know that there's no easy answer to this, but what do you think the options are here looking ahead? It's a bit of a loaded question. Because I'm sure depending on which stakeholder group you ask, you ask the scientists, they have a very clear way, I generalize, right? But let's say you have the scientists have a very clear way of looking at it, then you have the regulators or the policymakers who have a very different way of looking at it, and then you have the companies who have a very different way of looking at it, because everybody has their own interests to protect or promote, right? In the case of scientists, for example. And I think that that makes the answer a difficult one. The easiest way for, for us to operate or where I would recommend anybody in the space today to operate is to say, look, the policymakers, at least in the European Union context, right, the policymakers may not be perfect, but the reality is there's a huge amount of research that goes into policy, especially at the European level, and it may not always be as specific as we want it, as scientific sometimes as we want it, but it is, it, they don't just come up with it, it there, there was there was a huge amount of research that it went into informing the, the reason why we've put these rules in place or why we will be putting certain rules in place. It's certainly going to make life much more difficult. I completely understand that, but it's just the reality of, of life. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get away from it. It's going to happen, right? So I think the biggest thing that I would urge anybody, even as a consumer, is to say, all right, well, understand, understand that you know, from a, from a European standpoint, circularity today is seen as probably the first thing that we have to unlock because it's 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 doable and probable with very little change. And the change really just has to happen on the packaging design side. Everything else in the value chain can kind of remain as is, as long as we're just making sure that the things that we're inputting into the infrastructure, into the waste infrastructure, are just designed a little bit better for the purposes or for the, for the abilities of our waste infrastructure. So it is quote unquote, low hanging fruit. We still have a few bits to go, but it, it is doable. So I think circularity should absolutely be doable because it is the infrastructure is just waiting for us to, to utilize it better, right? And to, to just make, let's say, better second generation materials out of it. I think second, having an eye on biodiversity protection is always a huge one because as I mentioned, and, and as you also prompted earlier, the transition into the better green alternative does not always mean that it is always better because you do have to consider that if you're working with biomass, 
you have just like you do with petrochemicals. I mean, nothing in this world is done in a silo. Everything has an impact on some other kind of ecosystem or some kind of impact on the next market, the next stakeholder. And you always have to consider what what kind of a ripple effect am I causing by investing or choosing or promoting one or the other solution over the other. And you can still make that decision, but at least you're making it consciously and you know what you're doing. And as long as you're able to do it in an informed way, I would argue you're probably doing it better than most at this moment in time. And to be fair, if we continue to also on the third point, continue to act in a very frugal way, because cost, ironically, a lot of the times, if you look at a way to reduce costs, you're also probably improving sustainability because you're making usage of so much more you're, you're making use more of your, you're reducing energy or you're doing more with the energy you put in or you're selling products that previously you were wasting and somebody else is paying you for them. So now you get to make a different type of, let's say, or you have a different kind of revenue set up altogether. So ironically, if more, more industry players were to take a look at the way that they're producing the materials or their end product, and they simply were to look at it in the most frugal sense, like how can I put in the bare minimum or how can I make the maximum out of the input that I have to give, right? Regardless of how much I optimize, you're likely going to be improving not just in efficiency and cost, but you're probably also going to be improving in your sustainability metrics because those two correlate, right? The less I put in or the more I get out, the more, you know, if I put in the same amount, but I get to make five products, my emissions are attributed to five different products all of a sudden, whereas previously they were attributed only to one product and my emissions profile was much, much higher. So I think it's not that difficult to think sustainably. I think it's just because a lot of people feel like it's hard and it's difficult and it's overly complex. The market is, yes, but I think for a standalone player, just looking at your own cost profile is a really good way to, to already move the needle in the in the right direction. I mean, it really depends on what choices you're making, but it is possible, I would say, to, to think in terms of resource efficiency, if you also think about it as cost efficiency. So I think those would be kind of the three big tenets to live by if I had to, if I had to give somebody our answer to the problem, because those are always the three big things that we take a look at, right? How do we achieve circularity? How do I make sure I'm not um, messing up any kind of ecosystem? And how do I make sure that I'm, you know, optimizing on costs, i.e. optimizing on resources so that I can also increase the sustainability performance, at least LTA performance of the products that I'm starting to bring out. And I guess these underlying capability across those three is, is the commitment to invest into R&D. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that Unilever has a, a large R&D team. How does the R&D that you do at One Five compare to, say, the traditional incumbents? I think the reason our business exists, I think the change over the last 10 years has been pretty significant. And the pace at which the incumbents are expected to adjust it came as a surprise. I don't think everybody in the packaging industry was ready for the single-use plastics directive. They're by no means ready for the new packaging and packaging waste directive that's coming in. And they definitely weren't prepared for the sustainability agendas of all of the consumer brands companies. I don't think any of us were really, I certainly wasn't expecting them to go so high and so ambitious. And who knows if they'll reach them. (laughs) By now, I think track record shows that they might not, but nobody expected them to dive into this topic with this much investment. And that obviously has a huge impact on the rest of the supply chain. And maybe some of the players didn't think that it was going to come this quickly. So I think the speed 
of R&D is now going to be the main differentiator between companies that will continue to service the needs of customers as their needs also evolve. Because the reality also here is that climate change and climate science continues to evolve. I mean, I don't know if any of you read the Twitter or X threads over the over the weekend, the whole kind of sulfur and the ocean temperatures rising, how we've kind of geo-engineered our own downfall because we forgot to or didn't consider a variable that we created. And now that it's gone, we're realizing that our models are completely off and actually we're increasing the temperature or the temperature increases much, much higher than we thought it would be. And that obviously also has an impact on, I mean, not, certainly not right now, the consumer goods industry, but knowledge like that does have a huge impact and it does impact the consumer goods industry at some point as well. And it will drive players to transform faster and companies like ourselves and other incumbents will just have to be able to keep pace. I think consumer goods companies are really good at pushing when they need to. And I think until now, the packaging industry, perhaps because plastics were so amazing and paper only had to do what it had to do, had a relatively easy time at servicing the needs of the customers. And now they're expected to do new materials, new developments. Everything is completely out of the norm. And that's, I think, the struggle that we're now able to bridge because as a, a pure R&D company, we have the luxury of focus. We're not having to worry about, you know, running 15 different production sites at the same time and developing new materials. We really have the luxury of focus, the singular focus on just new materials, new developments, new, 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 and making sure that it fits with what the customer and the supply chain needs. Everything else is something that we know that the current supply chain or our customers can focus on. But that also means that we can deliver speed and we can deliver novelty where others may need more time or more human capacity to do so. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.